to the Earthquake Science Center seminar for November 16th. Um, and uh, today we have Tristan Buckrice from UCLA who's going to talk about subregional analytic path effects in California. But before I hand it over to Grace Parker to give the introductions, there are just a couple of announcements. Um, November 18th is the deadline to schedule your user lose. Um, in addition, we're soliciting volunteers for the December 7th Earthquake Science Center um, seminar, which will be probably around three practice AGU talks. So if you're going to AGU and would like to practice your talk, please reach out to me and Evan. <clears throat> November 30th is the um, Earthquake Country Alliance meeting at the Aviation Museum in SFO, the airport. Um, where there's going to be a quake break given by yours truly. Um, the 23rd of November at midnight is the sign-up deadline for the January 10th to 11th Subduction Zone Science Workshop. Please see the email from Keith Knudsen for more details. As of yesterday, you should have upgraded all of your iOS devices. Um, and finally, on December 8th, um, there is an all-hands virtual um, from 11 to 12.30, where you can meet our new Earthquake Science Center director. Um, and without further ado, um, please make sure to turn off your cameras and microphones while the speaker is talking. Um, I'll pass it off to Grace to do the introductions. Thanks. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Tristan Buckries as today's seminar speaker. Uh, Tristan has a bachelor's degree from CSU Long Beach, where he completed an honors thesis on uh, numerical modeling of deep foundations with Dr. Lisa Starr. And he's currently a PhD candidate at UCLA in the Civil uh, and Environmental Engineering Department, where he works on regional ground motion modeling um, with special attention to soft organic soils. And he'll be speaking on that topic today. So I will hand it over uh, to him and we can get the seminar started. Thank you, Grace, for the introduction. And I'd also like to thank the USGS for inviting me to, to give the talk today and for uh, providing me with the opportunity to share this research with everyone. I'd also like to, so today I'm going to be discussing subregional analytic path effects in California. Um, this is a work that has been done by myself and my co-authors, Pengfei Wong, who is at Old Dominion University, who was formerly a PhD student and postdoc at UCLA, and professors Scott Brandenburg and Jonathan Stewart at UCLA. I'd also like to acknowledge that this research was uh, sponsored by the California Department of Water Resources, and any opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed here are those of myself that do not necessarily reflect the views of, of the DWR. First, an outline of what I have prepared for today. I always like to begin presentations with a review of some basics so that we all have a good understanding of the principles that we're going to be that I'm going to be discussing today. Then I have a bit more background on what path effects are and how we model them, which will then lead into a, a, a brief discussion of the ground motion data that we use during our model development, how we chose to subregionalize California, and I'll define what subregionalization is in the context of this presentation in the, the background section. And then I will present the model and how it performs. And then I'll end with some conclusions um, regarding general modeling of path effects and then also regarding the model that, that we produced. So beginning first with a review of some basics. First, I have some definitions, and I'd like to apologize to any purists in the audience today. Um, I use these definitions to, I might be a little lenient in how I use some of these definitions because I'm trying to convey messages and important topics rather than textbook definitions. That being said, I want to first start with a textbook definition of what ergodic is. So it's relating to or denoting systems or processes with the property that given sufficient time, they include or impinge on all points in a given space and can be represented statistically by a reasonably large selection of points. Bit of a mouthful, but it's best easily understood by two other definitions. The first being the time average, which is the average of many observations for a particular system over a long period of time, and then an ensemble average, which is the average of many observations for many systems at a particular time. So essentially, how do we assess ergodicity? Is are these two averages equal to each other? If they are, 
then expectation values or averages can be assumed to be reflective of temporal phenomena. So to tie this into ground motion modeling, which is subject of today's presentation, um, we have the ergodic assumption that we use, which is that ground motion distribution at a site over time is the same as the ground motion distribution over space. So I will have a little bit more to say on this on a future slide, but essentially under this assumption, we can develop models that predict the average at one location by using the average of many locations. So an example to make it clear what an ergodic process is before going into non-ergodic. An example is a coin toss. Assume we have a fair coin, so equal probability of landing on either side, gold on one side, blue on the other. We have five people, we ask them to flip a coin. We'd expect a probability of 0.5, but that realization is impossible given the data we have available to us. We'll get something maybe like 0.6. Now we can repeat this exercise many times for these people, and we can see we can get many different probabilities. We can look at a time average, which is just the probability for one person, or an ensemble average, which is looking at the probability of all people for one particular trial. Now, because these are small samples, they might not always equal each other. But given enough trials, in this case 200, you can see at the very end, if we look at uh, after 200 trials, all the probabilities of each individual person, which is represented by the lines, pretty much converge to 0.5 and trials of ensemble sizes of 200 also are around 0.5 most of the time. So this can be conveyed as an, or interpreted as an ergodic process. Now ground motion is a non-ergodic process. Easiest way to look at this is if we have five people that do not move and we have two different earthquakes in different locations, ground motions or the amplitudes of shaking that our intensity that they feel for these earthquakes are gonna be different each time for each event. We understand that there's a lot of phenomena that influence ground motions. That could be source effects, path effects, and side effects, which I'll discuss in the next slide. But if we account for those effects in our model, then we can use the ergodic assumption to predict uh, intensity at particular sites. So in a ground motion model, now this is a kind of cartoon that most people are going to be familiar with, but we use series of equations to, to model these effects. So assuming we have an earthquake, it's going to produce some level of shaking at the site, as you can see by the wavelet shown down here. And these are quantified in source models, Fe, which is shown here, which use source parameters like magnitude and mechanism to predict the level of shaking. The energy has to get transferred to a site through wave propagation, which can also be referred to as attenuation, which will always reduce the energy of the wave, which we can see is going to have a lower intensity. This is the focus of today's presentation, so I'll be discussing this in detail in future slides. And then we actually have to get to the site, which is can, can be quite complicated, but there's a lot of work done over uh, the past couple decades or so looking at site response and the factors that influence it. And so we have a fairly good grasp on site response. Now, connecting ergodicity and ground motion models, just recalling, Ergodic is when the time average equals the ensemble average. Underlying process of ground motions is non-ergodic, as seen by spatial variability. However, an ergodic model would be one that's developed under the ergodic assumption. The non-ergodic model attempts to transform the underlying non-ergodic process into an ergodic process. In other words, we want to remove all spatial trends in the residuals. So it follows that ground motion models I would propose fall on a spectrum of either being ergodic, which would be to the left in this case, or non-ergodic, which would be on the right in this case. And a way to think of that would be non-ergodic side effects. This is research that has is fairly mature. We have pretty good grasp. We, we understand it. Where if we have sufficient number of observations as represented by each of these dots in residual versus period space, we can pretty much get the average response at that site, and then we can compute an amplification that's representative of this average response and compare it to an ergodic model. In this particular case, the amplification is a bit higher than what an ergodic model would suggest, and the general shape is also a bit different. And the main benefits of non-ergodic models are that we improve the prediction, so we're less biased, and we reduce the aleatory variability with respect to site effects by removing the site-to-site -site variability. Now, on the spectrum, where what influences how non-ergodic a site response model is? Well, fundamentally, the number of observations. If you have no observations, then you're going to be fully ergodic. 
if you have 100 observations, fully non-ergodic or close to non-ergodic, I should say. Now with path effects, it's a bit more complicated because it's not just a point. Now we're looking at a coupled system between a source and a site. So how do we, what are they and how do we model them? So there are two phenomena that kind of control path effects. The first is geometric spreading, which is related to energy loss associated to, to the wave front as it travels over ever increasing area. Think of it as a water droplet in water. It's going to create con or concentric circles of waves. The waves at the very close to where the, the water fell into the, to the, to the pool are going to be pretty high. But as they get farther and farther, they'll eventually disappear because there's the energy is just spread over such a large area. The other um, phenomenon, which is the focus of today's presentation, is analytic continuation, which is energy loss associated with mechanical propagation. A way to think of this is a projectile in water. Its speed is going to be really fast when it's first fired, but it'll quickly slow down and eventually come to a stop. That velocity is similar to a wave amplitude. It's going to be pretty high, but as it travels farther and farther, the amplitude's going to get smaller and smaller. A bit of a thought exercise. Assume we have a site in California represented by this gold triangle, and we're going to look at some plots in intensity versus distance space and within event residual, which is the log difference of an observation minus a prediction from a model with any source bias removed. And in this case, if we're looking at one particular site, the site bias is also the same uh, versus distance. So we can have an identical event. Now, this isn't ever going to happen, but an identical event that happens at any azimuth from our site with equidistance. Now, assume that a path travels in a straight line from our event to our site. An ergodic model would predict that all of these events have the same exact behavior. We essentially see this dot, but we'd interpret the results to show up as the smooth result. And assuming the ergodic model is correct, our within event residual would be zero all the way across. But that's not the case. That's not what we see. We can have three examples of a red event to the northwest, a blue event to the east, and a green event to the southeast. And the data that we have from these events would just be these dots. And I like to say that ground motion modelers are essentially glorified connect the dot people. All we do is we want to connect these dots to this dot over here in the context of path modeling. How we do that is up to us to make our decisions. So first we can look at this green observation, this green event, for example. Its path is going to travel kind of pretty much through the Central Valley. That's all pretty consistent geology. It might just be that, oh, it tends to attenuate slightly faster, so it's going to be a smooth transition. This blue event has, you can see, variable terrain that it's going to be traveling through. And maybe that terrain relates to the attenuation. So maybe I can draw something like this where it's slow, even slower, then fast again. And you can see that where the effect is always a reduction of intensity, but the rate of reduction is variable as represented by the within event residual. Similar case for the red event, just different results. Now we're just going faster. I could have just as easily for these green, for the blue and the red events, either gone a simpler method and just averaged everything to make a smooth line, or I could have been a bit more complicated. And so that's what path modelers do. We get to decide how we draw these lines. So now looking at some equations, path modeling is just the sum of geometric spreading and analytic attenuation. There's also saturation, which is just to say that amplitudes don't change very much over short distances. But geometric spreading would be a constant slope down in intensity versus distance space. Analytic attenuation is just additional energy loss. And for the purposes of this presentation, I'm going to assume that geometric spreading is constant because this is thought of if we assume that the Earth is a perfect sphere, geometric spreading will be the same around all of the, the Earth. Analytic attenuation is related to the properties of the crust. So it's understandable that this is likely more variable than geometric spreading. The approaches that have been performed for path modeling, it's a brief history lesson. We began with just fully global models. There weren't a lot of data. NGA West produced just one analytic coefficient, for example, for the entire world. We then got more data in NGA West 2, and we developed broad regional models for areas like California and Japan, where we have a lot of data to refine those estimates. So we add in this regional adjustment, delta C AA in this case. There's also local methods, local regional methods. Erdem et al. 2019 proposed a regional adjustment for the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, where deep events were found to have faster attenuation than shallower events. And so those events just got uh, had an additive attenuation term added 
onto them, which you can see is represented by the dashed line compared to the solid line. And lastly, kind of the most sophisticated methods that we have currently are cell-based methods uh, initially proposed by Dawood and Rodriguez Merrick, 2013, where we discretize an area, a domain into many different cells. And for each cell, we have an analytic coefficient and we can sum up the product of the analytic coefficient and the path length through each cell to get our total analytic uh, attenuation. Now, Kuhn et al. applied this method to California. See, they use the NGA West data set there where there's a lot of data in the Bay Area and Southern California. And we can, and those data are reflected in where the changes are observed. We see changes in the Bay Area and Southern California, good lowered certainty, lowered uncertainty in the Bay Area and, um, uh, and Southern California, but rather large uncertainty in other areas. But kind of a this is a good modeling approach and I don't want and I want to emphasize that it, it's valid and it, it, it works well. However, a drawback of this approach is that it's not easily interpreted. For example, we can see that, oh, there's some variable rates up here and some variable rates down here, but what is producing those rates? Well, these are just cells. The data suggest what the attenuation shows. More so, if we look at smaller features, for example, some of the cells with the lowest and the or the slowest and the fastest attenuation are literally touching each other in Northern California. What causes that? What are the reasons why these cells, even though they're so close to each other, have <coughs> such different rates of attenuation? And you can't interpret anything from this model you, based off of this discretization because it's just a purely mathematical model, although it does work well. Um, for reducing bias and variability. So how these models fall on the spectrum, it's a bit arbitrary where I place them, but the order is important. Global models obviously ergodic. Broad models, a little bit better, but still pretty ergodic. Local models, a little bit better, probably still ergodic, maybe not ergodic, we're getting into a fuzzy range. And then cell-based methods kind of span a big range where we have you know, coarse cells or large cells or small cells, or they get closer to non-ergodic. Obviously, regional methods and cell methods can span different ranges, but they have different advantages and drawbacks. Today, I'm going to be discussing sub-regional methods, which take the advantages of both method and combine them. So we take the physical basis that local models use, generally defining a domain and trying to group together areas with similar attributes, to our discretization and then applying the math behind cell-based methods to hopefully allow us to interpret the model. Now, as a researcher, I would hope to be able to reach a fully non-ergodic path model. However, I don't think that that is ever really realizable. But as an engineer, we, had, we can achieve something that is practically non-ergodic, which is to say, what is the least sophisticated model that gives us the same results as super sophisticated models. The problem with cell-based is, is users may feel intimidated by the complexity that it looks to be. It's, it's not that complex conceptually, but mathematically there's a lot going on and users may not want to or may be afraid to use it. By simplifying the number of cells and making it easy to interpret, people may be or inclined to use a subregional method, a cell-based method using subregionalization. And that's where I think a practical non-ergodic would fall is by reducing the number of cells, but still achieving similar results to a, a cell-based method with a lot of fine cells. So that's kind of the today's presentation. So first I want to discuss some ground motion data. A lot of data has made, been made available since NGA West 2 concluded. We can see the events of NGA events in blue. We have the Ridgecrest events where we collected a lot of data. Ping Fei during his dissertation was investigating site response in Southern California, so he collected a lot of data. I'm investigating site response in Northern California, so I collected a lot of data, or I gathered a lot of data rather in Northern California. And you can see there's a lot of sites that we've collected. Now, the data that we use, we only use magnitudes above four to, to kind of uh, not include uh, small magnitude events that sometimes there's issues with spectral scaling with magnitude. And we imply we enforce uh, magnitude distance criteria. But if we see the impact of this additional data, which is shown by the red compared to the blue, we have a lot of small magnitude events and 
a significant increase in the far distance observations, which is also seen in period, in period um, versus number of record space. Now, for path effects, this has significant implications. For NJOS 2, you can see we have gaps in our data where we can't refine path effects. Central California, Eastern California, and Northern California predominantly. With this additional data, we pretty much fill in all of those gaps in Central California. We push as far east as we can get, and we're slowly pushing up north. So we can refine most of the state with the exception of kind of this northeast corner pretty well compared to what previous efforts could do using just NGA West 2 data. So the hope is that now with all this data, we can refine these subregional trends. So how did I or how did we rather sub-regionalize sub California? Well, I said one method might just be to group similar properties, and one property that is kind of readily available is physiographical provinces. California can be described into 13, really 11 um, provinces, but some of these provinces span large ranges. For example, this coastal range, all the way from the top of California down to, to lower end of central California, is all one property, and it's unlikely that the uh, attenuation within this region is similar. So this helps to create a starting basis for subregionalization, but we need to refine it. Um, one thing to look at that can help that is rock quality factor, which is just the ratio of stored energy over dispersed energy. It can be thought of as the inverse of analastic attenuation, so a high value means slower attenuation, a low value means faster attenuation. Uh, Oberhart Phillips 2016 produced a model, it's depth dependent. Most path models haven't tried to consider depth dependence yet, so obviously we have to interpret these results as a two-dimensional plane. But what we can see is that, especially in this top row, just focusing here, there are some areas, predominantly the Sierras, where have, which have pretty high QS, so slower attenuation. There are other areas, for example, the northern coastline in California, which is pretty red, so would suggest slower attenuation. And if we look at like Z equals eight kilometer depth, this coastal range, which I suspected might have some internal variation, we have faster attenuation here, a mix of attenuation as we get to the, the middle parts around the bay, and then back to some faster attenuation as we get to the south. So obviously we need to do some refinement of physiographical provinces. And this is one way to do it. Another way would be to look at event-specific attenuation. Here we just fit this functional form where we have an event attenuation times distance and a vertical shift up and down to capture any near-source trends. And this particular event attenuated faster than what the ergodic model would suggest, which would be representative in this plot here by the pink-colored circles. Events which have slower attenuation would be cyan, and events which have average compared to the ergodic would, would pretty much be white. The problem with this is that these events use observations from all subregions. It's not just one particular subregion. So again, we have to interpret the results. But we see similar results as the QS, for example, in the coastal range, where we have high negatives or large negatives in the north, a mix of results, and then a, that slowly transitions to positive to maybe to back again being negative. So there's variation within those provinces. We ultimately decided to create nine broad subregions. And there's probably many of you that may be offended by this subregionalization, many earth scientists that may be offended by the subregionalization. But I want to emphasize that our purpose of the subregionalization was to capture the broad analytic attenuation effects. We want to create a model that has relatively few um, regions to compare to a model like the Kuhn model, Kuhn 2019, which has about 500 or so cells to see if we can get similar results. So obviously in the future, we can come back and we can refine issues if we see any within region differences. But for now, these are the nine subregions that I used. I just wanna point out the North Coast region because I'll be talking a lot about it. And I also wanna mention the Sierra Nevada region, which is uh, to the east of California. And I guess I can also mention Southern California. Now for our model development. Now here's where I'm going to present some a bunch of words and some equations, a bit of the boring stuff that we don't like to see, but we have to, to at least present. We perform our analysis 
using residuals, typical residuals analysis, where we compute a residual as the natural log difference of the observation minus the prediction of a ground motion model, which would be BSSA 14 in our particular case, what I'm presenting here. We can then partition these total residuals using mixed effects methods to estimate the event bias or the event term, but we're careful to only use path unbiased within our total residuals. In other words, we only use observations within 100 kilometers because they are unlikely to be significantly affected by anelastic variations between subregions. So it follows that it's actually two rounds of mixed effects. The first uh, round separates a bias and the the random effect for the event or the source bias. The second one is a mixed effects on the within event residual, which separates side effects and the remaining residual. I have more to say about why we're interested in the side effects during this analysis when I talk about the performance. Um, but just for now, one thing to keep in mind is that within event residuals contain within them source uh, site bias and path bias. So we're interested in decoupling the two of them. The third step is to inspect the trends of the data within residuals versus distance. If we see for trends, then we formulate a path model. A little spoiler, because we're talking about this, obviously we've seen trends. And we develop an adjustment for the analytic model, which can be added to the source model and the site model in BSSA 14 for a, a new ground motion model called GMM1. Then we recompute the residuals using this new model and observe new estimates for the event term within the residuals and the site terms. We will repeat steps three and four until the model coefficients and random effects, event terms and site terms converge. And the reason why they will change is because you'll see in the subsequent steps. We, after we've removed the first couple or the, the major path effects, now we can estimate event terms using the entire data set, so all observations past 100 kilometers. And now analytic effects may have an impact on those random effect terms. Lastly, we evaluate the performance through residuals analysis and dispersion calculations. So what trends did we initially see? So if we look at the data set as a whole, we can have for one particular intensive measure, 0.1 seconds, PSA at 0.1 seconds um, versus distance. You can see that the bin means are relatively flat. There's quite a, a large dispersion, maybe slightly trending downward. Large magnitude events where we didn't add a significant amount of data because there's not that many available to us do have a slight bend down, but for the most part are pretty unbiased. But for small magnitude events where we added a substantial amount of data, we essentially doubled the amount of data available to us. We can see that there's a pretty strong bend down to about negative 0.05. So faster attenuation as a, is kind of observed for California when we include data from more regions that weren't currently included in NGA West 2. So we see these variations across the state that we need to capture. One way to look at these variable rates are to, to bin observations based off of what subregion the event originates in. So for example, all events that originate in the North Coast would be binned here, and we can see that yeah, the North Coast has faster attenuation, which aligns well with what the, the QS model would suggest. Sierra Nevada shows slower attenuation. It's bending upward. So, so we're over predicting the attenuation in the ergodic model. And, so, and a range of other results, but I'm just going to focus on these two um, for the purposes of time. But in these plots, you can see I've also colored each data point based off of the pathway within a region. WR. Now that weight is pretty much the same as how paths are computed in a cell-based method. If we assume the simplest case where the source and the site are in the same region, or the same subregion rather, the weight for that subregion is going to be one. All other weights are going to be zero. So each observation essentially has a vector of weights with the number of elements in that vector is equal to the number of subregions. And the sum of all those weights is always one. So if we have a path that travels two subregions, we can see this for site two, we have about 70% and 30% in these respective regions. And it's the same case whether you have something more complicated traveling through five or so regions. And, and that is how we're going to kind of smooth out the effects to connect the two dots, the dots that we have here 
And if this was intensity versus distance space, we'd have a dot at the intensity at the site. And that's how we're going to just create a smooth transition between those two dots. So what model do we use? So here's the modified ground motion model that we're proposing. Here we have constant adjustments that are usually contained within the source uh, term of the ground motion model, which C0 would be one of those coefficients. We add on two new terms. This first term is related to a side study of induced events in the geysers region of Northern California. We found that they on average have source effects that produce weaker ground motions than what the ergodic motion, uh, ground motion model would predict. So, but they do not trend with any predictor variables, so we just add a constant. We did a rigorous study to, to assess whether path effects for induced events were the same as tectonic events in the same subregion, and which ultimately concluded in that the path effects are the same, which makes sense. It's just the source effects that change. The paths have to travel through the same material. But we also add a regional adjustment, and we modify the path term. The other terms are taken exactly from BSSA 14. We don't adjust these because we're just interested in adjusting the region, sub-regional effects. Before, we know that path model is the sum of geometric spreading and elastic attenuation. I'm only going to modify the elastic attenuation, assuming geometric spreading is constant. It's likely not constant, but it's probably a lot less variable than elastic attenuation, so this works for the current study. We just take the functional form proposed by BSSA 14, which is a global analytic attenuation plus an adjustment for regional effects times distance. Distance is just for, for BSSA 14, square root of the joint of water distance plus a coefficient. However, this delta C3 star is pretty much the cell-based method, but we're no longer computing individual attenuation for each path, we're just getting one average attenuation for the entire path by combining these weights. Mathematically, it's pretty much the same. You end up at the same result, so the same point, but the path that gets there is a little bit different. What the impact has on our model, if we look at intensity versus distance space, the black line is the ergodic model of BSSA 14. If we have a positive delta C3 star, so it travels mostly through regions with um, relatively slower rates of attenuation, we're going to reduce our, we're, we're, we're going to subtract less energy as we travel farther away. The opposite was true as if, if this path travels mostly through sites, through subregions with faster attenuation, where we'll actually subtract more energy. The constant region, subregional um, adjustment for source effects is kind of self-explanatory. It's just a constant shift vertically um, along the of the y-axis. I did mention before that we use iterations in our method, and this kind of highlights the fact that things will change even after the first iteration. We do see the, the largest changes with respect to the regional analytic coefficient, which is the top row, and even the regional source effect, which is the bottom row. for these particular subregions shown here in the North Coast, Sierra Nevada, and Southern California. But they eventually converge after iterations and, and become stable. Now, I also mentioned that we're interested in this because of the implications path effects can have on non-agrotic site response. Remember, us within a residual contains site effects, which are contained in the site term, and also path, the path variability, or path bias, which can be in the remaining residual. We can see that site terms similarly will converge while this model is being developed. And if we were to look at the ergodic prediction shown in black at the very beginning without any adjustments, and the proposed subregional adjustment um, in red at the very end of our adjustments, we can see that there's a pretty significant effect on our non-ergodic site response. In this case, it's a site in Northern California where it recorded many events that travel through the north coast region and you can see those that strong north coast um, bias that we saw a couple slides ago was causing our site response to be predicted lower than what it actually is another thing that isn't too easy to see in this plot is that we actually do decrease the dispersion around our site term or the uncertainty by quite a bit the the ergodic or the black results 
the, the minimum is where my cursor is, the maximum is up here. But guess what? The maximum red point is here, and the minimum red point is down here. So we're uh, being more certain of, a, of our site response by accounting for systematic path effects. If we were to, to do a much finer sub-regionalization, it'd be likely that these results would be even tighter. Um, I, I would not know whether or not this, the, the non-agogic site response that I've shown here would be the same though. That's for a future study. So our final model coefficients, I won't spend too much time on this slide because it's just showing coefficients, not too much to interpret here. The main takeaways is if we compare our subregional analytic coefficients shown on the left versus period to the regional attenuation coefficients of China and Turkey and BSSA 14 shown by the solid black line and Japan and Italy shown by the dashed line, we see that there's quite a bit of variation within the state, which some of the the, the magnitudes of these analytic effects are similar to regional effects that we see globally. The exception being the North Coast, which has significant faster attenuation or more negative delta C3 than the other subregions. This Northeastern subregion, there's not a lot of data, but it also is suggesting that there's faster attenuation in Northern California in general. On the right, I'm showing the constant adjustment for source effects. And you might ask why I didn't scale the vertical axes a bit differently. And it's because this vertical axis is scaled to reflect this, the, the magnitude of the ergodic constants in the ground motion model. So you can see that these are pretty much negligible when we compare them to the, the constant adjustments that are in a ground motion model. There is some effect at long periods, but for the most part, there isn't significant impact of this constant adjustment, which is implying that the model that we formulated mainly affects the analytic attenuation, which is which implies that the model is doing its job well. So now I want to discuss the model performance. So first, just some overall performance metrics. If we look at the bias um, that's taken from the mixed effects methods, the ergodic model, BSSA 14 shown in black, proposed model shown in blue, we can see that we are reducing the bias. We're closer to zero when compared to, to the ergodic model for short to intermediate periods. Analytic effects pretty much go away at long periods. Um, so that's why they the results are pretty much identical for those long periods. But the model does a good job. Maybe we're slightly under predicting the, the intensities, but we're less biased than what BSSA 14 was on average. When we look at similar plots to what I showed before, looking at all events, large events and small events, we see that these bin means are a lot more centered about zero, especially for the large magnitude events. You can see they pretty much are, are pretty perfect um, right at zero. The small events are a lot better than before. There is some slight downward dipping at the very far distance, but for the most part, the systematic path bias has been corrected. With some refinement, we can probably get this to, to be perfectly flat, or nearly perfectly flat, I would say. Like I said, we see a pretty good reduction of bias at far distances. If we look at those subregions that we looked at before, we can see that, okay, the North Coast is pretty flat. There is definitely some variation still because we can't correct all distances. We can only really correct the far distances. But those far distances for all regions are pretty centered about zero. And the, the, the colored dots are a little less systematic than before, but there's still some um, systematics, like there's still a cluster of a lot of events which have weight one for North Coast here. So maybe there's some sub-regionalization for this North, sub-sub-regionalization that needs to be done for the North Coast. Um, Region. And if we were to look at this in intensity versus distance space, ergodic prediction on the top, the subregionalization prediction on the bottom, you can see obviously overpredicted for the range of magnitudes that's shown here for the ergodic, but we capture the response or the, the observed behavior pretty well when we include this subregionalization. So I also want to discuss some dispersion and variability. This is a, an effect of. Are we, which are computed for, through mixed effects results. 
total variability, just the standard deviation of, of total residuals, which can be partitioned into the between event variability, which is standard deviation of event terms, and the within event variability, standard deviation of the within event residuals, which can be then further partitioned into site-to-site -site variability, VS2S, which is an important for non-ergodic um, site studies, and single station variability, which contains within it the path-to-path -path variability. So the main thing we're focused on is what is the, the impact of VSS, uh, of subregionalization on VSS. Before I get into the results of our model, we did add quite a lot of data, so we were interested to see what is the general effect of adding all this data on VSSA 14 um, dispersion. You can see the black observations are the complete data set, the gray are what was is what's computed when just using the NGAOS2 data set that satisfies our criteria for, for data. You can see in general we increase variability at short to intermediate periods, which is to be a bit expected because we have a lot more observations in areas where we didn't have observations previously. So the parametric range of the data is a lot wider, and so obviously an ergodic model can't capture all of that behavior. Um, systematically, so we're going to have larger uncertainty. At long periods, though, we see a reduction, which is driven entirely by the reduction in the event terms. And this, we postulate, is probably a result of the fact that we have a lot more observations for these recent events, and we have a lot more data at long periods. The falloff isn't as, as significant as for the NGA West data. So because we have more data, we can actually accurately estimate these event terms and it just happens to be that the source model in VSSA 14 does a pretty good job on average for events in California, which is why we see the, the reduced uncertainty. Now looking at the effects of the model compared to VSSA 14 using the entire data set, I have sigma, which is the total variability by these thick lines, if we're looking at just all California first, you can see we pretty much reduce variability and it's pretty significant reduction also. It's not these aren't small, small reductions we're seeing. Tau is also significantly reduced. This highlights the impact that path effects can have when estimating event bias if they are pretty significant path effects. And by correcting for those path effects, we get a better estimate when using all of the data to estimate um, event terms. B, which is shown by the, this dotted line, also shows a pretty significant reduction indicating that the path-to-path -path variability, um, because the site-to-site -site variability doesn't change too much, that's why it's not shown on these plots, is also significant, which is shown by the thinner solid lines down here by the blue line being lower than the, the black line. We noticed that the North Coast actually had quite a large contribution to the uncertainty. This might be driven by the fact that, that we don't have a lot of data up here, and the, the uh, uncertainty related to the event term because we're also including those geyser events is also pretty large. But we see consistent trends where the subregional model performs better than a fully ergodic model. Similarly, if we look at non-North Coast events, so now we're just looking at purely tectonic events, which, which is what um, the model was, the BSSA 14 was designed for, we still see considerable reductions in uncertainty. And when we look at these reductions, the new model is pretty much equivalent to, to, to what has been presented in existing aleatory variability models like uh, Alatique 2015 or Goulet et al. 2018. So this, the increase of uncertainty by adding the data is offset by accounting for subregionalization so that we pretty much have the same aleatory variability models that we previously were using. Now to to quantify the reduction of variability and to look a little closer to see where the reduction is actually occurring most, if we just take the difference between BSSA 14 results and the proposed results, we see that the reductions are pretty much occurring mostly at long distances, greater than 100 kilometers. Excuse me. Which is what we expect because anoelastic path effects manifest greatly at far distances. So it makes sense that these far distances are showing the greatest reduction. And these reductions are on par with what was achieved in the QN et al. 2019 model. They're a little lower than what QN et al. 
um, showed, but it shows that just with these nine regions, we're getting pretty close to what Hewn et al. have for 500 cells. So that's that's a pretty substantial finding. So lastly, some conclusions. I have some general conclusions about path modeling and then some more specific about the model I presented. Path models exist on an ergodic and non-ergodic spectrum. We can never get to be fully non-ergodic, but ideally we'll get to a point where things are practically non-ergodic. Subregional path modeling combines the advantages of regional and cell-based methods where we can constrain our discretization based off of physical principles so that we can interpret the model and then apply the cell-based math for the analytic effects. I'd also argue that cell-based methods are kind of only have applications only for the region which they are developed, but I foresee there's potential future application of using lessons learned through subregionalization to regions where there's less data, for example, where we can't do these non-ergodic path studies. But that's sort of future work that, that needs to be fleshed out. But as kind of what I mentioned there, as with other method, modeling methods, subregional methods are limited by the data availability. But I think we try to optimize the amount of data within each subregion by creating large subregions with some physical constraints. Now, conclusions about our path model. The biggest conclusion is that we find variable rates of analytic attenuation across the state. Not necessarily new finding, but with new data, we're, we're able to refine these results a lot better than what previous efforts have, have found, which they've postulated that, oh, there's variable rates, but there was insufficient data to, to really quantify them. Main findings there are significantly higher than average NGA uh, North Coast subregion, so faster attenuation there, slower than average in the eastern subregions, maybe related to the high Q West and the, as the waves travel through the Sierra Nevada. Coming back to this first point, um, this faster attenuation might be related to the fact that the rocks in the North Coast area have been tormented in their tectonic history, so the Q West is so low and that's what's driving the attenuation low. I'd be interested to know what anyone any earth scientist would suggest might be causing these uh, observations. And then lastly, intermediate rates for other subregions, which tend to trend to be slightly faster attenuation. Current models are dominated by small magnitude events, but we assume that the variations are equally applicable for large magnitude. It wouldn't make sense that the, the energy loss is directly um, related to the, the magnitude of the earthquake, so our, unless we start to get into side effects with nonlinearity and things like that. We see a significant reduction at very far distances, which can be achieved using a relatively few number of subregions. And I believe that further refinement of these subregions holds significant potential to bring us to a practical non-ergodic path model that can be attractive to practitioners that's easy to interpret and easy to, to implement. So that's sort of the, the next steps would be to refine this model to be um, able to fully capture non-ergodic path effects. With that, I have some references that I've referred to throughout this presentation, and I'd like to thank you and open it up to any questions. Thanks, Tristan, for the awesome talk. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? You can either raise your hand or type in the chat. Um, Grace? Hi, Tristan. Thanks for the really great talk. You did a great job explaining all the work that you did. I have a question about the constant, the regional constant terms, the delta C NOS. And um, the first part of the question is, can you talk a little bit more about how um, they were estimated? Were they like a parameter that you fit in your model or were they taken as like, the average of event terms? And the second part <clears throat> of the question is, um, I was surprised that they were so small could you talk maybe a bit more about why you think that is um, and how you thought about addressing trade-offs between the path and the source effects? Yes. So to answer the first question, um, the way that we estimated 
the delta c knots is it's not strictly a source adjustment, a regional source adjustment, as some researchers have tried to or have proposed for smaller regions. The reason why we didn't want to propose a a pure source adjustment is because some of these subregions don't have many events, especially as we get out to long periods. So trying to define a, a true adjustment based off of a few number of observations would have such large uncertainty that we felt that it wasn't necessarily to our advantage and we really weren't at that point in with the data that we had available to us to confidently develop uh, a source adjustment. So even though I refer to these as a constant source adjustment, really what they are, if I go back a couple of slides, are an adjustment with respect to the within event residual. So when when we fit the, the total, I guess this, this shows it here. When we fit the event specific attenuation, we can see that each event is gonna have some offset up and down for short periods, depending on the functional form that we use. And when we went to fit the, the groupings for subregions, which is shown in this slide here, you can see that the, the, the region which showed the, the largest impact would be the north coast, where we can see that there's a slight offset from zero. This offset is actually what that delta C not term is. It's the offset with respect to the within event residual for each subregion, which was estimated using these clusters of events that occurred within each subregion. So, so this so data after the event terms have been removed. Yes, after the event terms have been removed. Did you look at your event terms binned by these different regions? Yes, so we did that helped us to come up with the subregionalization. We spent quite a bit of time. We, and it kind of also helped us to identify that the geyser events had significant bias. If I, I have a hidden slide that kind of show what, what we found. So this particular slide here shows when we looked at the, the binning of event terms, most regions had similar average event terms relatively well captured by the ergodic model except for the North Coast, which had significantly lower event terms. And we found when looking at our data that it was driven primarily by these geyser event terms, which the ergodic model predicts to be a lot lower. So we're seeing lower amplitudes than what BSSA 14 predicts. Hence why we introduced this adjustment to, to correct for this induced source effect. I think, Thanks. Does, does that answer your question? But I'm not sure if I answered the second part. Uh, I think so. I, I was thinking that um, I think the fact that the delta C naught are fit to the within event residual explains why they're so small. Yeah. Thank you. Anne Marie? Yeah, um, thanks, Tristan. Uh, it was really great and a really nice um, walkthrough of, of all of the your work and the non-ergodic models. And um, maybe following up on, on Grace's question, you showed a little bit later on the overall bias um, here. Yeah, so um, we've observed, and yes, or maybe this was kind of covered with the discussion you and Grace were having, but we've observed um, that there's a, a difference between Northern California and Southern California and Kuhn et al. and other people have seen that as well. So am I understanding that um, with your proposed model, there's your, are you, I guess this is the bias for all of the data. Um, can you, I guess, can you explain, does that um, account for any difference between Southern California and Northern California? Are you inherently then more correctly modeling the path attenuation and thus removing any bias between the two regions, or how do we interpret this um, bias going from, you know, pretty significantly negative to zero for, for most of the periods? Thank you. So I'm aware of the differences in the that North Coast events are generally um, found to have 
bias with respect to the magnitudes. I think it's related to the catalog of, of which reports the source parameters. In our study, though, um, if I go back up to methodology, we don't inherently in our method um, try to correct for those differences with respect to Northern California and Southern California source effects um, because we remove um, the event term in the within residual, and we're only looking at within residuals when we develop the model. So those are, I guess, we operate under the assumption that the systematic differences with respect to, uh, to event bias, which can be contained within the event term, is subtracted out of the within residual and, and isn't mapped into our model development. But then, didn't you just say that there was no systematic? difference in the event terms regionally? So there was, um, so I did state that there wasn't any strong system. I don't have a slide to show that. That's fine, yeah. Differences in, in the event terms. Um, there were obviously differences between them. However, when we look at bins and essentially histograms of event terms, the statistics of each group were pretty similar except for the North Coast, which after right. correcting for the, the geysers, were still slightly more negative than, for example, Southern California, but it wasn't like astonishingly negative, which we're seeing here. So th right. there's so definitely I, yeah. some, some bias still there, but. Right. Yeah, so let's talk more about this later, maybe, but I guess I'm curious if you're, you're basically you have an improved attenuation model, and if that is sort of inherently correcting more correctly accounting for this observed difference between Northern California and Southern California, right? So it could be because of the catalytic magnitudes. It could also be because the attenuation models are different, right? So Precisely. I guess it's, yeah, I'm curious if you, you're inherently perhaps accounting for that in a, in a better way. I haven't thought about that, but I, it makes sense that by correcting for the attenuation, we would correct for some of the bias that we're seeing. This event, like I said, is a Northern California event. And if you were to compute an event term using all the data, it would pretty much just be an average. So we'd get something negative, close to negative 0.9 or so. So that right. would be pretty much uh, strongly influenced by the path effect. So by correcting for that path effect, we'd bring these bins up and get closer to zero. Right. So I agree. Cool. Okay, I think we have time for one more um, question for the recorded part. Um, so Art Frankel had his hand up. And after that, um, if you're willing to stay on, Tristan, we sometimes have this informal session where we stop the recording and people can just still ask stuff. Yeah, so go ahead, Art, with your question. Thanks. Uh, great talk. Really interesting. Um, a lot of times people see uh, strong attenuation when for paths that sort of go across the structural grain of an area as opposed to paths that sort of align along uh, parallel to like the faults and things like that. Uh, so do you see any kind of trends like that where paths, you know, going across these structural boundaries, it produces more attenuation than paths along the structural boundaries? So we haven't systematically looked at any azimuthal variation is, is what I would consider that to be. We've just kind of lumped all observations together and found these general differences. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we could see that in the data, and I, I think that's an excellent follow-up to, to look into. I'm also a bit concerned that you're using response spectra and rather than Fourier spectra. Um, I realize response spectra, the metric that's used in the ground motion models, but if you want to, um, you know, expand this to different magnitudes, you might, there might be some discrepancy because you're using the response spectra, which are, you know, also contain the source spectra of the earthquakes. So you might have some uh, discrepancy there of extrapolating this result to larger magnitudes. Do you have a comment on that? Um, I definitely agree with the fact that a response spectra analysis might um, produce uh, better results. Um, the reason why we pursued this method is ultimately this project kind of came out as a side project of another study where we were looking at 
um, um, site response in Northern California. And we found, for example, that the Northern California had this, this awful path effect that was just skewing our site response. So our site response study is done in, in PSA, the response spectral domain. So we needed a way to try to cap to correct for these path effects. Hence why this, this work, it broadly captures the effects. We don't go a couple steps farther to try to capture everything. I think it's definitely future work. And I agree that a response spectral, or sorry, a Fourier spectral analysis would, would be probably a good way to, to pursue it. Uh, I don't know if I get to, to make three comments, but you mentioned anelastic attenuation. This could also be scattering attenuation can also contribute to this effect. It doesn't change any of the analysis, but uh, to say it's just all anelastic attenuation I think is a little simplified because obviously scattering also can cause uh, seismic waves to decay with distance. So, yeah, I definitely agree. We we went with the simplification assumption that the analytic attenuation was going to vary a lot more than the the geometric spreading or the scattering attenuation. So obviously, for a for a full adjustment to a path model, we'd have to look at all of these effects. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, okay, I think that's all the time we have for the um, formal session. So, Susan, if you could stop the recording, or I can do it. <laughs>